that you go and put on the headsets now. So for the headsets, what you want to do is go ahead and grab the front of the headset and then the back of the headset, push it together in order to tighten it. If you do need assistance, we're here to help. No, Michael, those aren't the instructions for a ride at Disney World. It's from a science course at Arizona State University where they're using immersive virtual reality to help students understand concepts from the classroom. And Jeff, with all the talk about the metaverse, we want to take a step back to understand where the bright, shiny object in ed tech augmented reality and virtual reality, or ARVR, where it really stands right now when it comes to transforming teaching and learning on this episode of Future You. Have you ever had to say to your students, it's in the syllabus? In our new ebook, Dr. Stephanie Spiker shares how you can humanize your syllabus to better connect with and engage your students. Download it today at Course Hero, where faculty share resources to improve student outcomes. Find it at coursehero.com slash future you. That's coursehero.com slash future in the letter U. Subscribe to Future You wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Twitter at the handle Future You Podcast. And if you enjoy the show, please give us a five-star rating so others can discover the conversations we're having about higher education. I'm Michael Horn. And I'm Jeff Salingo. When my family was in New York right before the start of school this fall, we tried the virtual reality experience at the Harry Potter store there. And afterwards, the the look on the faces of my two girls, who are in fifth and seventh grades this year, made me realize that after years of reading the books and watching the movies and, yes, going to Universal, that this was experiential learning in a different way for them. So maybe extended reality, which is the umbrella term for VR, which immerses you in an alternate world through a headset, or AR, augmented reality, in which handheld devices or glasses are enhanced by virtual objects, maybe it could potentially augment their learning. You know, years after VR was talked about as potentially transformative for the classroom, it does seem that many professors and institutions are now talking about it the way that Lisa Flesher does. Lisa, who helps head up the VR efforts at Arizona State University, describes VR as another classroom tool, much like PowerPoint. There is the affordance of it sticking differently in your brain. And so when you have a combination of general lectures, PowerPoints, reading, like all the other tools that we use in education, and we just add one more tool to that toolkit, it's ensuring that a wide variety of learners can persist and succeed. So I'm a special advisor and professor of practice at ASU. I was visiting ASU's entry into VR called Dreamscape Learning on its Tempe campus in August, just after my virtual visit to Hogwarts. You know, ASU's VR work is a partnership with the entertainment company Dreamscape Immersive, which is led by Walter Parks, a Hollywood producer, with credits such as you know, Men in Black and Minority Report. Now, the plan for Dreamscape Learning is to eventually bring their VR experience to K-12 schools, as well as other colleges and universities. We're starting just here at ASU, and for us, the scope is huge, and that's probably just because we, we <laughs> are huge. So we have about, we did a very big pilot study last semester, and for all intents and purposes, it might as well have been a real study. We put lots of students through 
Um, but this semester, this fall, we have all of our bio 181 and 100 students going through this. And so we're talking thousands and mm -hmm. they're doing it both campus and online. So it's a 2D version for all of our remote learners. It's a full pod version like we have at our Creativity Commons on the Tempe campus for those students that are campus based. Um, so I think we're going to, I mean, it, it's huge for us. For now, as Lisa mentioned, ASU is focused on intro courses in biology where students on the Tempe campus come to a central location called Creativity Commons once a week, nine to 12 times a semester before their labs. They come here to Creativity Commons and do one 10-minute AR or one 10-minute VR experience in the Alien Zoo. All the data that they collect in there, um, the different experiments that they are performing, all that information is passed back to their Canvas shell through APIs and LTIs. And then they have to do it before lab that week because then they still go to their three-hour lab and do everything with that data collected. So they're graphing that data, analyzing it, forming hypotheses, connecting it to real-world problems. Like in our cell biology module, it's actually, they're doing work that's solving breast cancer. And so all very much connected back. They test a whole bunch of things. They go back into VR the next week and test their hypothesis, make some you know, adaptations, make some edits to what they thought might have been the problem. And then ultimately, they will go back in the third time and kind of see did their um, solution actually work. And so every module has kind of a three-act sequence, and they do quite a few of those throughout the semester. And what are you finding in terms of their engagement? Like, how has it changed from the way these courses were previously taught? Mm -hmm. Honestly, they love it. It would be hard to give you quotes right now because two of my favorite quotes have expletives in them. So maybe I'll tell you and you can choose. But even yesterday, this is we just started the semester and a student came out and they're like, this shit is so cool. I mean, they're just excited about it. Like it meets the way that they, the way that they engage just for entertainment, it fits it. And so this brings a kind of an excitement to education that they might not otherwise see. Um, and so they're excited about it. Uh, last semester when we did our research study across the board, students rated it about a 4.6 out of five. So every time they came into VR, they quickly rated how they felt about that module, if they had motion sickness. And we kind of thought throughout the semester it would wane like 4.6, 4.5, I'm tired of going to creativity commons. And their highest rated module was the last one. They just like it. And so, um, I think it's because we're, we have so many students that are growing up in the metaverse that are gamers that just spend time in technology. And so this is just sort of a way to meet them, you know, with the tools right. and things yeah, that they so use. I got to experience a bit of what the ASU students do in these immersive lab modules. I put on a headset and sensors on my hands, and I was transported in a flying research pod through an alien zoo of creatures. The idea is that we're researchers in what Dreamscape calls an alien sanctuary for endangered species of the galaxy, and we're collecting data on the animals. Now, when it was over, I asked Lisa about applying this to other disciplines across the curriculum. With Dreamscape, like with Walter and kind of with the core team, the next two content areas that we're pursuing are climate and sustainability, and then um, also chemistry. So those are the ones that we're collectively kind of as a executive level team pursuing. And then because as part of this relationship, we also got access to the software development kit. So our staff and faculty and students can start developing on it themselves if they can code, if they know Unity or have students that can. And so our School of Earth and Space Exploration, as well as our Herberger Institute of Design and Arts, are both going to start building environments themselves with their students and faculty. So upcoming, like starting in January, we have two big projects going in those content areas. And then we have our teams here starting to build as well. So I don't see a world in which 
we send somebody into like a VR environment for four hours. For four and hours right. <laughs> it's too exhausting. Like there's fatigue in those technology tools, in my opinion. So I think it's best use as an augment, a supplement to the curriculum, not a replacement of, I just, I don't see it being productive as a replacement. I see it being something that comes along and supports the curriculum, just like all sorts of other tools, Zoom, you know, PowerPoints, all, all of those things are just tools in the tool belt to ensure that every learner has a chance of succeeding. ASU, of course, is known for its huge scale and its forays into ed tech. So I wanted to see how immersive learning was being used elsewhere, particularly at small institutions. So I went to my undergraduate alma mater, Ithaca College, where I also serve on the board of trustees. Now, I didn't pick these two institutions where I have affiliations to say no one else is doing anything in this area. Indeed, lots of campuses are experimenting with VR and AR. By focusing on ASU and Ithaca, I wanted to illustrate that it is happening at all kinds of institutions and in many academic programs. So here's Becky Lane, Associate Director for Innovative Technologies at Ithaca, talking to me about how Ithaca used VR for education students during the pandemic. We started out in the education department, and this was right when the pandemic was starting and everybody had been sent home. The students were all doing Zoom classes, but we had a teacher education program that needed to uh, give students the opportunity to teach, but they couldn't really do that in person, just on Zoom. So we um, sent them each a, a inexpensive headset and uh, we used social VR and had the students construct different uh, lesson plans and teach uh, in a virtual space to each other in sort of this uh, virtual embodiment situation. And they really liked it, and it, it really helped them feel less alone, uh, which was great. And that was the, the first iteration of that. And it worked okay. Like I said, it was, their, uh, it was an entry-level headset, so it was... Um, had overheating issues. They could use it for a half an hour and the battery would die. But the, the, the gist of it was that it, it was really useful and helpful. And so we did it again the next semester with a, a nicer headset and a better social VR platform. And that's when we really saw the students sort of taking that technology and running with it and really enjoying um, using that. So is this best applied um, in what we would think of as hands-on learning, or can it really be applied across the curriculum in, in innovative ways? I think it really can be applied across the curriculum because we've used it in so many different ways. Like right now, we've got uh, the physical therapy students studying neuroanatomy uh, in a virtual lab with a professor. And it's funny because last semester, the professor was actually in Brazil and they were able to um, sign in in Brazil and meet with the students here at Ithaca College and be in this virtual lab and study um, a, a model of the brain and look at different animations and take it apart and you know look at all the different pieces. And you know they're continent away. Uh, we've had uses where, um, like in the art department, where um, the subject was street murals. So we were able to use Google Street View and Google Earth to place a student in the area where the mural is. So they get a sense of 
where this piece of art is in space and the culture around it and, you know, the feeling around it. They can walk around the neighborhood and um, just have that embodied sense of, of viewing that art where it's supposed to be viewed. Um, we're also using it with um, our occupational therapy students where we're showing them how they can use VR in their own practice. So we know that um, if you're a patient, you'll try harder in VR, you'll reach farther, you'll work harder. Uh, so showing that to the, the occupational therapist is, is really helpful and they've really enjoyed um, you know, using, using the technology that way. There's the technology and then there's the underlying pedagogy. One of the things that Becky stressed is that VR is a team endeavor from the tech side to the teaching and learning center that can help professors design the story so that students learn what's expected from the experience. So that it's not just some cool movie or video game for them. Right. Well, it's definitely something that needs um, TLC. You know, it's not just the cost. The headset um, from Meta is about four hundred dollars, um, and that's a commercial headset. So, and you can design a class around you know four people using one headset. It doesn't have to be a one-on-one -on -one thing. Um, but if you go to something that's more of an educational solution, like the Lenovo solution, it's going to be a little bit more expensive. But what you get with that is a content management system, which is uh, if you're working with 30 students, it's it's important because um, commercial headsets are not designed to be shared, and they uh, Meta actually made it difficult to share by uh, forcing you to have a Facebook account, which was problematic. Uh, they don't do that anymore. Um, that's a recent thing, but um, I think that it is possible to have a a, a good program with with a you know a few headsets and uh, the then the next thing is to have somebody who will actually go out and help the professors understand how they can use it and without a dedicated person there I think that that's pretty difficult okay um, so let's talk a little bit more about that so how does that happen like so does a professor raise their hand and say I want to use this do you like demonstrate it is it word of mouth like how is this that you, you talked earlier about different courses this was being used in? How does that spread across a campus? Well, I make a concerted effort to uh, reach out to professors. And also at the beginning of the semester, uh, we do a presentation where I talk about all of the things that they can do with VR and um, invite them for a consultation, uh, share what other professors have been doing. We do pop-up events uh, around campus. We have open hours where people can just come and uh, play in the headset. Students, faculty, staff can come and do that. Um, but usually I'll, um, if a professor expresses interest, I'll sit down with them and ask them you know, what, what do they want their students to learn and then try and match what is out there um, as far as either narrative programs, 360 videos, um, applications, either commercial or educational, or um, the, the social VR where people can come and, and have discussions and look at 3D objects. And that's really helpful for like um, the health sciences. I mean, when it works, it's great. You know, uh, when it doesn't work, it feels like me trying to struggle with this microphone in front of a class and it's not working. Right. You know, or if it's someone, uh, like, it doesn't work for everyone. It's not just the accessibility issues. Like, some people still get sick 
even though they've, you know, really worked hard to address that with the refresh rate and the headsets. But, um, and I've had people say, well, I'm afraid of open spaces or I'm afraid of being alone. And before I put a headset on them, I'm like, well, I don't think you should do VR because right. you're going to be alone in there. So there's the VR experience of two very different institutions. When we come back on this episode of Future You, Michael and I will be joined by a reporter from EdSurge to help us distinguish the hype from the reality when it comes to extended reality. You want your course content to be engaging, or do you want it to be pedagogically sound? You probably want both, right? But knowing how to leverage all the teaching tools at your disposal can feel like a never-ending learning curve, especially when it comes to technology. At Course Hero, teachers with diverse backgrounds come together to create rich and engaging learning experiences using online tools and applications. From learning how to create a more engaging syllabus to building a more inclusive curriculum, Course Hero is a virtual gathering place for teachers who want to level up their digital pedagogy. Join Course Hero's teaching community where digital innovators and classroom changemakers connect and share actionable insights for the future of education. Create your free account today at coursehero.com educators. Members get access to their faculty newsletter filled with teaching tips from fellow faculty, ebooks, and early bird registration to upcoming events and workshops. Join today at coursehero.com educators. That's coursehero.com slash educators. Welcome back to Future You. And for this next segment, we're welcoming Rebecca Koenig, a reporter and editor at EdSurge. And Rebecca, you've reported extensively around this question and concept of extended reality in the realm of higher ed. So we're looking forward to this conversation. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So there are really kind of two trains of thought, it seems, around AR, VR, and higher ed. One is that there's a practical way of using it, Um, you know, virtual reality science labs, which of course became really popular during the pandemic. Uh, I interviewed these uh, folks at uh, Ithaca College, which we just heard the segment of where they used it during the pandemic for teacher education, right? To just put people in the classroom, uh, for example. And then the second one is this one, to be honest with you, I still don't quite get um, that. The part that really seems overhyped to me is kind of the metaverse application, right? Where higher ed is going to be in the digital realm with avatars and digital campuses. And of course, big names in tech are very excited about this, but it seems like higher ed is pretty skeptical about that, right? Yeah, I would say so. I would say um, these very practical applications that you have seen um, do seem to be catching on and sort of interestingly catching on at the kind of places that are not always the most well-resourced, like community colleges, because they're you know helping them solve um, issues that they've had about being able to pay for real uh, physical tech tools and in-person instruction. It can kind of solve for that. Whereas I would say the metaverse concept um, is is sort of catching people's attention in the ed tech space, maybe a little bit more than the actual educator space. Uh, not entirely, but I, I would say your characterization is uh, matching what I have been reporting on. 
I, I was just going to say, it's interesting because, you know, the first one, like I would say, is like classic disruptive innovation theory in the sense of, you know, we'd like to be able to offer this experience. We can't. There's non-consumption. You, you put, you know, the virtual reality science lab there. Dave Thomas at Morehouse told us that they use that extensively. He was thrilled with now their students being able to have access to what you could only have before at MIT at a small college like Morehouse. Uh, and we've seen comp- you know, venture-backed companies like Labster, uh, which I should say, full disclosure, Entangled invested in, uh, where, where I used to be, uh, you know, sort of make a big business out of this. But I, Re- Rebecca, then there was this announcement along the lines of the second, <laughs> which was the metaversities. There was the 10 metaversities that got uh, announced. And interestingly enough, Morehouse College was among the 10. It was powered by this company, I think, Victory uh, XR, that's been around for, I want to say, five or six years, maybe seven years at this point. You probably know more. What is the what, what are these metaversities? What are we to make of this announcement? What exactly are they doing? Yeah, um, all great questions. And Meta, the parent company of Facebook, uh, made uh, millions of dollars available to spin up these metaversities. And the initial 10 campuses that were announced, effort was made to get a diverse set of campuses. So that this was not just, you know, being built in the Ivy League. And actually, you know, it's possible that um, one reason that there was reception among the colleges that were picked is they in a sense, maybe are a little bit less resourced than your MIT. MIT could probably huh. build its own metaversity if it wanted. These are places that probably um, couldn't, at least initially. And, and someone at South Dakota State sort of said that to me, that, you know, we don't have the money to do this by ourselves. So when someone showed up and offered this, we, you know, after assessing it, we said yes. Um And what they are building is what they call a digital twin campus, which is to say, um, you know, taking the campus at South Dakota State um, and making a digital version that, you know, an avatar could navigate around the way they don't like this analogy, but the way you might do on Second Life. Um, they say it's way better than Second Life. <laughs> so just to put that out there, they don't like that comparison, but. Understandable. Understandable. Um, so this is sort of the, the premise. And the idea is that you will be able to walk your avatar to your virtual classroom and and take a course um, virtually that is supposed to be, you know, way more engaging than your typical Zoom video class. Um, The hope is that this will open access to people who can't make it to campus, but it will also just be more engaging for students who want to take some classes this way, you know, stay in your dorm, put on your headset and you know, be analyzing a cell under a microscope without having to do that physically. Um, and there are a lot of people who are excited about this. And then there are a lot of folks who worry about data privacy. Why are we partnering with Meta here to do this? The, so um, sort of the predictable tech uh, supporters and questioners, you know, kind of come out here. So I don't think I realized that Meta had funded these. Are, are these virtual twin campuses that they're creating, are they to enroll new students? Are these like an OPM program almost? Or are these for their current students and they create this sort of hybrid campus experience? What's their vision for what this, where this will really go? Um, and I should clarify that there are a couple 
sort of middlemen companies involved. Um, you know, Meta said that they're not actually that involved in the design of any of this. It just happens that they are donating money and the headsets that make it possible. But these companies, um, other companies are actually building the tech out. So just, you know, worth sharing. It's, it's not a direct tie to Facebook. Um, but it's actually for the current students. Um, it's not to build a separate digital only program. The hope is to like make this hybrid college more engaging than, than like a Zoom class would be. Yeah, and it's interesting, Rebecca, because I, I just, we were in New York City recently and my kids and I, we went to the, my two uh, daughters, 10 and 12, we went to the Harry Potter uh, VR experience. And, um, and you know, I, I don't know, I, I'm a Gen Xer. I just find all this stuff a little whatever, but they, I get, I get how they just, this is the way they learn and see and, and, and living in this environment is just different. And so maybe it's just, Maybe this is the future uh, because of the way students are learning today. I'm just, I guess I'm still skeptical of the big metaverse. That said, I have seen how this supplements, um, ARVR can supplement the physical campus and the physical courses. And, and let's stay there for a minute because, um, you know, you, you mentioned the headsets and, and things like that. I mean, is there, is this a big barrier to colleges and universities? Because we're talking about, you know, equipment again, um, hardware, things like that. You know, we're, it seems like so much in higher ed is, is moving to the cloud and they're trying to reduce hardware on campus. And now we're bringing hardware back. Um, and especially hardware that the university has to provide. Because again, it used to be when I went to college, we had computer labs. Now everybody brings their own laptop and things like that. It seems like now we're kind of moving back to this idea where the institution is providing the hardware. And I'm just wondering how much of a barrier is that both to institutions, but also to individuals? Are, are we going to expect students to bring their own headsets now, just like they have to bring their own laptops and things like that? Yeah. Um, very good timing. Brookings just put out a report about um, these sort of similar questions about, is there going to be a new equity problem if AR and VR catches on in higher education? And their research suggests, yes, that we already have a digital divide where you have some students who don't have internet access, who, you know, barely have a working mobile phone that they're trying to type an essay on. So certainly when you introduce, you know, I think the going rate for a commercial VR headset is about $300 these days. Um, and that's not nothing to a student who is trying to figure out how to, you know, pay for housing and pay for the bus to get to class. Um, there's been a couple of examples I've seen of university libraries actually taking on this hardware headset situation in which they get some money and they can invest in a couple, um, headsets that students can rent like a, or not even rent, borrow like a book. Um, but that doesn't serve, you know, a campus of 10,000 students. So I think that the access concern is very real. Um, I just heard uh, I think it is someone who sets policy for higher education in West Virginia saying um, like 40 percent of rural folks in West Virginia don't have Internet access. So it's going to be difficult. The the better Internet you're going to need for these experiences, the better Internet everyone's going to need in order to participate. Yeah. So I guess the the bottom line question here is when we talk about outcomes. Right. So I interviewed folks. 
uh, out at ASU, which of course has partnered with Dreamscape uh, Learning for their AR VR work. Um, interviewed folks at my alma mater, uh, Ithaca College, and they're using other technology for their AR VR work a lot. As I said, in the in for teacher education, but also for you know uh, occupational therapy. They've even used it for their athletes who are injured, um, volleyball mm-hmm. players, for example, who are injured and want to continue to kind of pretend to hit balls and things like that. But I guess the question at the end of the day is, again, with a lot of ed tech, is around outcomes. Like, is this does this work, I guess, at the end of the day? Like, does it have a significantly different outcome for students in terms of how they learn? Yeah, that really ought to be one of the first questions <laughs> asked. And sometimes with ed tech, it's not. So I'm glad you've asked it. Um, uh, we did a story on EdSurge about one research study uh, by Richard Mayer, who's a well-known researcher in the ed tech space. Uh, and they were comparing how students um, appreciated and learned during a virtual field trip, as opposed to just watching a video on a computer screen uh, about learning about climate science. Um, And the results were pretty promising for the virtual field trip. Students who learned the information that way um, scored better in terms of interest and enjoyment and a sense of presence, which, you know, is sometimes hard to get through just watching something on TV. So there is research starting to trickle out about this. I wrote a story about research that's been done about the use of VR to encourage empathy, um, to sort of take on someone else's like literal visual perspective and what that does for um, a a student's ability to, you know, put themselves in someone else's shoes somewhat literally. Um, And this is being done uh, through the use of theater. Um, It's a Shakespeare app um, where you act out a Shakespeare character in VR Um, And then there's class discussions about sort of the violence that's, you know, written into this play and and how students have a new appreciation for the implications of that uh, on a community once they've acted it out in VR. So that's pretty interesting. Um, It seems, though, that the excitement sort of outpaces the research uh, uh, here. And so it will be interesting to see if there are studies about these metaversities as they get built, like what is the implication of spending half of your college time in a VR twin campus as opposed to on campus? Yeah, it's interesting just listening to you say that because it feels like it'll be the answer to the age-old question in any uh, in any social science class in college, which is it, it depends, right, <laughs> <laughs> on, on on how it's implemented and so much. I know Chris Didi at, at the Harvard Graduate School of Education has done a lot of research on this as well and been using AR in a lot of his classes and creating environments for environmental impacts of, of different, uh, you know, co- tragedies and consequences, right? And, and how it plays out. It, it's also interesting. I, I, I will say, and Jeff, you'll get a kick out of this in particular for the book I'm working on right now. One of my co-authors said, Michael, you really have to buy at minimum an Oculus, maybe something even higher, uh, because you and I, we could go for a walk while playing mini golf and really work out some of these issues that we're having on this question. And I thought, wow, I don't know if I'm ready for that leap, but it occurred to me what sort of you both are saying, which is, you know, Ben Thompson, the technology writer, has written about this. You know, the internet, it was all about the World Wide Web. And then we sort of, most of us now experience the internet through the mobile internet, through apps and things of that nature. 
And the metaverse, in his view, is really just the internet best experienced through VR. And much like you've had a mouse at your side and so forth, if you start to have these headsets, and yes, it will be unequal for a while, but over, you know, measured over a decade and a half, maybe it looks very different uh, going forward. May, you know, maybe this is something that sitting here is much more difficult for uh, at least a few of us to, to imagine what that looks like. Um, but, but may, maybe it could evolve in that direction. And, and I guess that's where I, I, I want to ask my last question, Rebecca, with, 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 with you here, which is, you know, you're seeing all the funding going into this space, a lot of the hype, right? Startup companies, you have to see effort, like to create these environments and so forth. Can you just give us a sense of like, what, what do venture capitalists, what is the industry, what do entrepreneurs think of this opportunity? How are they eyeing this uh, when, it, when it comes to VR, AR, metaverse, and higher ed? I think that the pandemic, um, by forcing everyone to do online education to, to some extent, um, in a lot of tech folks' minds really proved the need for more engaging technology than we have access to, you know, typically. So it's pretty amazing that we were able, um, those of us with, with access to these devices, to do video calls, to keep education going to the extent we could. But you're seeing such low rates of college student engagement now. Um, you know, a lot of K-12 folks reporting that students just didn't log on. It couldn't hold their attention. Um, and so I think in some regard, the events of the past two years have suggested um, we need a better way to learn online. We need a better way to stay connected to each other. Um, there are some real pitfalls to typical distance education. What if we could improve on them with better tech? Um, so, you know, there's excitement about that. And I think tempering that excitement will, you know, sort of be the work of educators to ask these questions you know, just because we can build a digital twin campus, is that what we ought to be doing? Does it work? Um, who are we leaving out? So, you know, plenty of excitement, plenty of money being invested. It, you know, we'll, we'll see. We'll see how well it turns out. It's super interesting. And we'll see if we're filming stage plays in, in our first venture of creating movies or something else. But Rebecca... Thank you so much for joining us on Future U to help make sense uh, of all these developments as Jeff and I sort of struggle blindly uh, through this field. We appreciate having you here. Thank you. We'll be right back with an interview with Sean Michael Morris of Course Hero. So we just had this extended discussion about AR, VR, but we also want to situate that conversation against the bigger backdrop of the role edtech plays, both positively and negatively, in teaching and learning in higher ed classrooms. And to help us do that, we're turning to one of our sponsors of this season of Future U, Course Hero, and Sean Michael Morris. Sean worked in digital learning and education for about two decades when last January he joined Course Hero as vice president of academics. And his hiring caused somewhat of a stir in higher ed circles. Sean was previously the director of the University of Colorado at Denver's Digital Pedagogy Lab and the editor of the journal 
hybrid pedagogy and was known as an outspoken critic of ed tech. So welcome to Future You, Sean. Yeah, thank you, Jeff. It's good to be here. So to get us started, Sean, a question that we like to ask our guests, which is the path that you took to join Course Hero and, and kind of why you joined. Um, yeah, so that's it's an interesting question, and I'm getting uh, I, I answer it a lot. Actually, it's really interesting. <laughs> so I've been working in education for uh, just over 20 years in a variety of different capacities. So everything from an instructional designer, adjunct faculty, director of digital learning, etc. And I also co-founded a digital journal and a professional development community that was all sort of focused on digital teaching and learning. And I was kind of known as a critic of ed tech because my work always centered on this sort of intersection of digital technology and critical pedagogy, which means I've been concerned with um, how technology and human beings interact in education. So I'm asked a lot, why did you join Course Hero? And um, the English teacher in me actually always wants to look kind of carefully at the semantics about that. (laughs) Because I wonder, did I join Course Hero? Does that mean that I uncoupled from something else? Did I leave education? Did I stop being an educator? I don't really feel like I did. But a lot of my colleagues have said, um, both in joking and seriousness, that I went over to the dark side, which I think is kind of implied actually by the question, why did you join Course Hero? But the truth is, is that when Coursera reached out to me about the position, I went into the interview process um, really to vet the company first and foremost, to ask hard questions about their pedagogy as a company, because I wondered, why do they want someone like me working for them? (laughs) So I did, but I didn't go in to see if they met some kind of purity test. I didn't go in to see that they were doing everything right, because I don't think that every, that anybody does everything right. Um, And I've worked at enough universities to know that education is a pretty messy business on any side of the EdTech divide. So I wasn't really looking for perfection. What I was looking for, though, was intention. And I was looking for a culture with a vision where I thought that my work could thrive. Um, and of course, here, I feel like I have the opportunity to support thousands of educators by providing really high-quality professional development. We provide lots of events and grants and teaching materials and all kinds of that sort of thing. Um, and I get to work every single day with, and, and, I, and I'm not shining anybody on here, but I, I get to work every day with brilliant, dedicated people who actually really want to make the world a better place for, for learners and, and educators. So as you mentioned, you've been long a critic of, of ed tech, but you also mentioned kind of intentionality, right? That you do see a place for teaching with it. So where can technology help with learning and where do you think ed tech sometimes gets it wrong? Um, it's sort of probably more natural for me to start with the last part of that question <laughs> where it gets wrong because I've been doing that for a long time. Um, but I actually kind of want to say something that here that might not go over very well uh, with a lot of folks, both on both sides of that divide. And that is that I feel like ed tech is sort of controlled by education. Um, and this is sort of a pivot from the way that I've talked about it in the past. But if you think about it, ed tech is a marketplace of products that need buyers. Um, and so those buyers do a fair bit of dictating what the products look like. Almost all of EdTech is a reiteration of what schools think they need. And those needs are often based upon a feeling that students cheat and teachers need control. Um, One of the things that I uh, pointed to a lot was learning management system or um, a remote proctoring service, for example. And these these services wouldn't exist if teachers didn't think that exams are as important as they think they are. If students could be entrusted with their own educations, their own learning, we wouldn't be so concerned about monitoring them while they take a test. 
But monitoring students' students while they take tests, that came first. Remote proctoring came second. So what I'm trying to say here is that is that ed tech is informed so strongly by the behaviors inside of inside of classrooms and, and that, that are sort of reinforced in teaching. And so when I was a critic of ed tech, um, and I, I actually want to be clear, like I critiqued ed tech. I don't really feel that I was a critic of ed tech. I critiqued ed tech primarily in an attempt to model critical thinking for other teachers and to get people thinking more carefully about what technology they brought into their classrooms. So when I was doing that, I saw, I saw ed tech as an interloper. I saw it as controlling or ruining pedagogy in the classroom. And I've written and written and written about this all over the place. Um, and I do still believe it certainly does reinforce some pretty bad teaching practices, but it doesn't invent those bad teaching practices. Standing on this side of ed tech, I see companies as entirely dependent upon understanding how teachers teach and students learn. And they usually rely on research that pinpoints sort of the middle behaviors across the spectrum. Um, they rarely have space to consider edge cases or the subtle but very powerful currents that are changing the way that teaching happens. When you market a product, you market to the widest possible audience. But in this case, in higher education, the widest possible audience are people, generally speaking, who are untrained in pedagogy. So the products that they're creating reinforce educational models that are generally kind of ineffective. So to answer your other question, I think that where technology could really help in education is in paying attention to those edge cases, to educators who are looking to break with tradition and consider new ways of teaching and learning, especially in an increasingly digital educational landscape. I think a company that would do that or a technology that would do that would actually not be what we would call an educational technology, but something we could potentially call a pedagogical technology. It's a powerful answer, Sean. I, I, I want to hearken back to your answer to the first question because it gets at where Course Hero, I think, fits into this landscape, which is probably another reason why people often ask you about joining Course Hero so often, which is that critics and, and take your definition of critics, right, seriously, but they often say that Course Hero is really just a glorified cheating platform. And I'm curious your reaction to that and what you've seen. So, yeah, it's, it's I, I, and I get where people are, where people are coming at it from that. Um, and, I, and I feel like um, I kind of want to address a question around, around academic integrity, because I think that there's a lot missing from a conversation around academic integrity, which which is why we have this conversation around cheating. Um, I feel like we could be looking at academic integrity or we need to recognize rather that cheating is kind of a result of a misalignment between what the academy expects and the reality of students' lives. Um, academic integrity to me argues that no matter who a student is, no matter what their background is, no matter where they come from, what their experience they bring to their studies, how they learn, where they find information, they're going to be held to the same standard across the board. Um, and the truth is, is that, and, and I think that COVID sort of pointed this out in a lot of ways, but we knew this already. Um, we just, we should just know better than that these days. The idea that any student is going to achieve success in exactly the same way and under the same rules and conditions as any other student is not that different from, say, arguments against using laptops in the classroom. Using a laptop is often an accessibility concern, but allowing it requires that we see students as they are, as individuals with capabilities, preferences, 
textured and varied nuanced backgrounds. Um, if we don't look at students that way, it's easy to point to their laptops and say, oh, they're cheating. People see Course Hero as a cheating site because it provides a platform for students to work with each other toward mutual success. The idea of students working with each other toward mutual success can scare a lot of people. Um, in fact, a recent article, uh, and I don't remember where this was out of, um, but a recent article referred to this as students colluding, um, which, is, which is really interesting language. And I think we need to be careful about that kind of language because it villainizes students. Yeah. It, and, and Sean, it gets to another piece that you talk a lot about, which is the importance of humanizing learning. You talk about humanizing the classroom. And it, it seems that that is connected, obviously, to this notion of academic integrity and how we think and value students as individuals, their past experiences, their actions to inform themselves. But I, I'm, I'm just sort of curious, you know, when you say humanizing the classroom, I suspect you have a very specific set of things in mind. I'd love to know what those are. And what's an example of how education perhaps is dehumanized? It's, it, it's an interesting question because um, I'm often asked to point to a set of practices that humanize education. And, um, and I really actually think of it as more of an undercurrent. Um, it's actually been an undercurrent in everything I've been saying here today. Um, and, it, and, it, and it feels a little bit interesting to, def to try to define it because I feel like we should be able to assume that education is a humane effort in the first place. Um, but, but then we can look at practices and policies that are designed to automate education or designed to separate the individual from the learning process. Um, so fully integrated things like grades, for example. Um, grades, grades are for beef, not people. Um, and, and those that are becoming more integrated and uh, other things that are becoming more integrated, like plagiarism detection, remote proctoring platforms, these distance learners from learning by fostering an environment of suspicion in the classroom. When we look at these things, it becomes pretty clear that education, that an education that thinks about the person is becoming a little bit harder to come by. No, that's helpful. And the quote that I will take away from this conversation is that grades are for beef, not people. Uh, but with that, <laughs> Sean, uh, thank you so much for joining us on Future You. Thank you so much. It's been great to talk. And with that, thank you all for joining us on Future You. We'll be back next time.